Welcome back to another edition of OKSO, a wild animal sanctuary focused on big cats and run by a man with a beard who is gradually growing a mullet because he can't leave his house to get his hair cut. I'm Jeff Wallenitz, and you're not going to believe this, but we've got another good episode for you. Today's guest is Brian Dutt, founder and CEO at B-Roll, a video creation platform that connects brands with video creators and social influencers. We talk about what it's like literally living with the news, advice that he got from his dad about greatness, how B-Roll is working with brands to reimagine their advertising, and which of the Freewheel founders would win in a fistfight. As always, if you like what you hear, please follow us on Twitter at Podcast okay so, and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Okay, so welcome to the episode nine of Okay So. With me today is Brian Dutt. Brian, welcome. Hello, Jeff. How are you, buddy? Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you over the internet. And it's the first time I've ever been on a podcast, so I'm honored. Oh, excellent. And as you said on the way here, the future is here, right? We don't even have to sit across from each other to do this anymore. Yeah, it's great. And now you also don't know that I'm wearing, still wearing my pajamas and sweatpants. So, you know. Well, I mean, now I do. Audio um, only. That's fine. The future. Yeah, audio only. And even video only is really just waist up. So, you know, it's sort of pants optional most of the time. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been waiting for pants to be optional. <laughs> It's it's one way to live. Let's put it that way. Um, so thanks for thanks for joining me. Um, I think we we talked a little bit in advance of this. You sort of know how I like to get this down, but um, yeah. let's talk about. Let's start where it all began. Where are you from? Well, um, the short answer is that I'm from the Bronx, New York City. I'm hoping there's no follow up questions. <laughs> no, I think we're done. Actually, it's great. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, hopefully you can edit this part out, but I'm actually from Riverdale. So it's kind of like the fake Bronx. Oh, no, that's, first of all, that's totally staying in, but separate uh. from that. Um, I feel like if you, if you grew up within the confines of the five boroughs, independent of where that is, you are absolutely 100% entitled to say you are from New York city. So you're saying I still have street cred in some way. I mean, some, and again, this is audio. People don't see what either of us look like, really. So uh, they have no idea. Fair. How my, driver's license, my driver's license says Bronx, New York. So there you go. Wait, even still? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I need that cred when I go to a bar. I mean, come on. So when I went to college, uh, I went to Binghamton. And um, I'm from Rockland County, but that's upstate to everybody who's literally crossing a bridge to get somewhere else. Yep. Um, and they, you would have thought that I was from a farm, basically, yeah. um, based on how people reacted who lived in the confines of the city. Well, aren't, you are from a farm, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> I grew up milking cows. So you grew up in Riverdale. And tell yeah, me, so what, was your, what was that like? I mean, what was it like growing up in the city? You know, I mean, I would say the Bronx is somewhere in between, well, geographically in between the suburbs and Manhattan, but it's also kind of uh, conceptually in between those. You know, I had grass, I had a park across the street, I grew up on the Hudson River, so, you know, my friends and I would go out on the water, well, near the water, launching water balloons at boats, you know, just standard things that, you know, adolescents do. You know, we go to the park. So you were more Metro North than Subway. 
Uh, well, you know, like we go, we went to high school and even junior high school on public buses. I mean, so I had, I had a Metro card when I was, I don't know, 10 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and it, so, so you just, you're riding the buses. You're like, you're legitimately 10 years old going to middle school, riding New York city buses. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, I guess it was a different time back then. I mean, and you know, my mom definitely, uh, didn't love the fact that we were, you know, walking to school or taking the city bus, but it, you know, it kind of worked back then. And so you went to Bronx Science for high school, right? I did. I went to the, the nerd <laughs> high school in the Bronx. And so what was that like? I mean, the reputation, I think we all know, is that it's pretty academically rigorous, but what was it like actually going there? Yeah, you know, it's it's weird. I mean, everyone there has, you know, it's very smart when it comes to, you know, math, science, English, you basically have to take a SAT like test to get in. But when you get in there, it, everyone is very down to earth. So it's not exactly what you would expect, I think, in, in you know, quote unquote, specialized high school. So, you know, it, they, you had all the standard uh, high school stereotypes. You had jocks, you had the nerds, you had the punk kids, um, you know, and it's, it's just a normal high school that everyone just happens to have a, uh, a, an ability to take tests, I guess. So on that spectrum, where did you fall? <laughs> you just basically uh, reeled off the, like the last, like the closing letter of the Breakfast Club. So yeah. like, which category did you fit into? <laughs> well, I, I'll put it this way: I was the editor of the high school paper, so I think that <laughs> so. Me... King of the nerds, nerd. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I grew up playing ice hockey, so we didn't have an ice hockey team at Bronx Science, so I couldn't be a jock. I was I was default out of the jock click. Um, what was the other one? Punk. Did well, you play for like I was in punk rock, so I guess I'm kind of punk, but not really. So, did you play ice hockey for a club team? How'd you like scratch that itch? Yeah, we like we. Uh, I played up in Westchester. We, you know, I was on those travel teams. We'd go all over the Northeast, playing kids in New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, and we 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 found we found a way to find ice near the Bronx. What was your position? I was a defenseman, and I was probably if I were four inches taller and maybe twenty pounds heavier, I think I would have been in the NHL. But unfortunately, I did not make it. <laughs> yeah, fifth and butts were candy and nuts, my friend. I, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. That's amazing. So, and then from Bronx Science. What was next? Where'd you go? Bronx Science. I went to Trinity College in, in Hartford, Connecticut. So small liberal arts school, studied economics. I Well, I actually found a way to make it onto the hockey team. Um, oh, nice. I was definitely the worst player on the team. I scored, I played one game in my college career and I scored one goal. So I like to say that I led the league in uh, goals per game. So goes per game average. Yeah, I mean one on the button. <laughs> yeah, so I you know, I um, studied economics. I also studied painting, so I was a studio arts minor. So I did oh, a, interesting. Oil, I, I went between, you know, supply demand classes to oil painting classes. Painting supply and demand curves. Oh wow, look at you. Yeah. I should have put it together. I would have been yeah. uh, I would have uh, been in the honor society if I got that. Right. Super conceptual. Um, 
So what actually what drew you to oil painting? Were you artistic growing up? Yeah, you know, I mean, my my parents are both kind of I guess you would say intellectuals. My dad was a classical pianist at Juilliard and uh, you know, my mom just is very, you know, very well read and sort of they both encouraged me at a young age to 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 do creative things, to explore creative outlets, you know. Sports was always kind of number one growing up, but we also you know, my brother played the cello, I played the piano, and then painting was this other thing that I just kind of figured out by myself when I was six or seven, you know, I was doing sketches, usually drawing hockey players, but, um, you know, and I, and I gra- graduated to landscapes, and now now I, for a, you know, part-time hobby, I fake Jackson Pollock paintings, so, um, you know. Just throwing paint at the wall, literally? Exactly, quite literally, except you put the canvas on the floor. He always painted with the canvas on the floor. Oh, that's cool. So I do find that that is one of the upsides of growing up in the confines of the city with, or even really the, sh- the, the very close outlying suburbs. Um, I only grew up about 40 minutes from the city. So for me, um, you know, being exposed to all of the culture that existed, Lincoln Center, all the museums and all yeah. of that, and raising my own kids here, um, I'm finding they have like a, they have a different level of knowledge about things, totally. um, which kind of cuts both ways, right? They're completely desensitized to things that I would have found mind blowing when I was growing up. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, it sort of cuts both ways. So we took them to the Redwoods um, uh, on a vacation <laughs> and I'm walking around and I'm like, guys, this is on, look up. These are, these trees are 400 years old and they're 300 feet tall. And they're like, eh, trees. Like, yeah, okay. Great. I, I, so I understand that. I, I can, I can, I can commiserate or if that's the right word, but um yeah, you know, I don't know. I, like we used to grow. I grew up going to the Met, and it's interesting you mentioned that. Like I would my, I would go to art classes in the Met, and we would just you know sketch there, and you know people would be going to see all the exhibits, and they'd walk by and they'd say, "Oh, that's such a nice you know little sketch you did," and it was horrible. But the it was it was a it was interesting encouragement to just be in a in one of the world's you know greatest museums and try to figure out how to how to actually create something. Yeah, I mean, my son takes a dance class at Alvin Ailey. No, and yeah, he's legitimately yeah, yeah. training with, you know, all of these incredibly talented dancers who Juilliard graduates and all of that. Right. And, um, and you also are an excellent dancer. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you if you saw my classical dance training, <laughs> I think you would be <laughs> you'd be something. Let's put it that way. Um, so. So your wait, I don't know that I knew that about you. So your father actually taught at Juilliard. He was a classical pianist. Yeah, he didn't teach. He was he was just he was a student. And my dad's from uh, my dad's from India. So he came, uh, I guess when he was seventeen, he came, uh, got on a plane, never been on a plane before, flew to uh, to New York and went to Juilliard. He was the first uh, Indian person to go to Juilliard. Oh, that's that's unbelievable. And yeah. so how did he? I mean, how did he find the experience? I mean, I think, you know, back then and still now, it's just, it's one of the probably most competitive places in the world because, you know, you have the world's greatest musicians going there and, you know, you're a lot of the professors and teachers are, you know, the the experts in their field. So it's a very high pressure place. You know, he always used to talk, he used to talk to me about it in the context that I went to, when I went to business school, he was always saying that the, you know, you got it, you got to be surrounded by the best in order to sort of make yourself the best. So I think there was a, it was a friendly competitive environment, I, would, I guess he would say. 
that's I think an incredibly smart outlook. Um, the smart, if you want to be smart, you got to be around smart. Yeah, I, I think that I think it's true. Even it's just kind of like it's uh, you know diffusion or osmosis at a certain point. It just kind of being around people like that just really elevates you. So you didn't become a professional painter. Um, so yeah, what do you do with yeah. that economics degree? How'd you, did you go right to business school or did you come to the city and start looking for a job? Well, I graduated college in 2003, not a great economy. And I, you know, my, my dream was to be an investment banker and <laughs> I made it. <laughs> so I did, I did two and a half years of investment banking in the city, you know, standard kind of experience sleeping under my desk uh, you know, working a hundred hours a week, working with some uh, eccentric personalities. And Did you work on any um, any big deals during that time? Um, yeah, I worked on well, I, my favorite one was the the DreamWorks IP, DreamWorks Animation IPO. So when DreamWorks spun out their animations, uh, the animation studio, I worked on basically helping take that public, which was pretty cool and. I did a lot of stuff in film finance, so that was that's actually kind of why I wanted to be an investment banking, just to work in the media industry. Um, and so, you know, we would literally finance film studios. We would basically give them the loans that they used to produce big budget films, like you know, Saving Private Ryan was like films like that, where they're spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars. The banks are basically funding it, and you know, I was sitting I was sitting there until four in the morning writing these reports about why they're a good investment or not a good investment. That seems more appealing than just sort of a customary, you know, business, random business acquisition. Like I'm, I'm sure they do a lot of underwriting mergers around, you know, grocery store chains and stuff oh. like that. But I would imagine doing it with films is a lot, a lot more interesting. Hey, you know what? Some people find those, you know, a gravel manufacturer, uh, I debt financing, very enthralling. <laughs> but like, there is no accounting for taste. Yeah, someone has to do it. Yeah, but you know, I, you know, I have a pa- personal passion for films, so it, it was interesting to learn the ways that films, the business of film, essentially, and really learning how the the uh, I guess the sausage gets made on the on the money side. Super interesting. And you actually are, and we'll talk about B-roll a little bit later, but you are actually one of the only people I know, probably the only person I know, who both kind of ran an M&A internally at Freewheel yeah. um, and then also started a company, which I think, you know, foundationally, the iBanking experience probably at least drove you in some of that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually strange. I mean, all the things that I hated doing so much and, well, I didn't really hate them, but I was sort of forced to do them, you know, you're forced to basically learn how to use Excel without touching your mouse or else they, you know, they whip you basically. So, <laughs> so, you know, you, you get ingrained and you'll just get ingrained in attention to detail and getting things done on time and, you know, no margin for error. And it's, you know, that kind of, that sort of like low fault to- tolerance was really good for me and my career. Although at the time it, you know, made me almost insane, but now you know, it's kind of like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So when I went, you know, worked at Freewheel, being on the other side of those deals, it, it was just interesting to, you know, see an acquisition happen where you sort of know the the analysis that's being done, and now you're just helping move it forward. Um, 
So it, it was talk kind of- a little bit about the sticky ads process. Like, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, so stick, when we were looking at you know, free will is looking to expand into the world of supply side platforms and programmatic advertising, and there were. You know, there was. It's always with anything. There's the build by partner decision. Like, which do you do? Do you do you start from scratch and build the whole thing? Do you partner with someone, or do you just buy something cool that someone already made? And there weren't that many standalone SSPs that were capable in video. And Sticky Ads was already a partner, so we, you know, we were friendly with them, and you know, had good integrations already. But it, but even then, you know, it's a it's a company across the Atlantic, and you know. It, you know, does it make sense to do crop, you know, essentially global M&A? And we spent a lot of time vetting it. And I, me- I remember the first time that I called Hervé, I called him, I think it was like right before Thanksgiving. And I, I was in an airport. I don't know where I was going, but I, I called him and I was sort of like, hey, you know, just wanted to talk. And it was very kind of, it's a very like flirtatious call where you call, he, <laughs> you know, he's not really expecting it. And, and I don't really know him. So it's sort of this, Hey, James said we should, you know, have a chat. And then he, he said, sounds great. I'm kind of running around. And then he called me back a little later. He's like, okay, I think I know what you want to talk about. So let's just talk about it. And, you know, it, it's really cool to be in that, to really be in the, um, the process, in the dialogue, as opposed to when I worked in investment banking, just pushing around PowerPoints and stuff like that. But, you know, it was a really amazing experience just to, see these companies come together and you know obviously i spent a lot of time with the, the free will leadership so it's very cool to sort of bring two leadership teams together totally um so let's change gears very quickly so you live with a cnn reporter i do and we are now it's now what april 52nd or something and mm-hmm. we've been in quarantine mm-hmm. for 985 days Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're all a little bit kind of fatigued by the news. So what's it like living with someone who not only lives and breathes the news, but is also actually reporting on the news? Like, how does that, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, so, so my girlfriend, Vanessa, is a, she's, a cor- she's a business and politics correspondent at CNN. So, you know, she's out there and, and a lot of what she does is capture sort of the on the ground human interest stories around the news cycle. So, you know, when, when GM um, was having, you know, issues with the union before she would go, she would go up to Detroit and um, she'd be on the ground with, with, with literally workers on the, you know, on the street. Um, In the case of COVID-19 and what's happening now, you know, obviously journalists aren't running around on the street anymore because it's not safe for anyone, but it was crazy in the beginning when they were still covering it, she would go out with a boom mic that was, you know, a seven feet long. And she would interview, for example, UPS drivers or, um, you know, people working at grocery stores and would hold the mic out and just stand seven feet away from them. And, you know, it's really gratifying work for her to kind of get their stories out, but it's also heartbreaking. You know, I'm, I'm watching a lot of the stories that she's doing now about people on, you know, who are on unemployment, haven't heard from the government about getting their money a lot of small business owners who got phased out of the um, the CARES Act or the pay- Paycheck Protection Program. So there's a lot of these this human interest stories that honestly will make you cry when you hear them when you hear them coming out. And you know it, it's it's a little strange living in New York now because you sort of you know it's out there but you don't really see it. And now it's sort of 
she's she's talking to these people every day and I'm sort of since we our office is now shared space you know I'm kind of with with her on all of it so it's 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 really interesting but it's also really really sad yeah, I think over the last few weeks, it's really hit home here, particularly in New York, um, given how hard it's hit New York, very generally speaking. How good is she at turning it off? I would say that she's very good, but I think that it's kind of hard not, it, it's very hard to turn it off because all day, she, you know, I listen to her calls all day, she's talking to people who are really struggling. You know, I, you know, there was a story about a man who lost it. He was making minimum wage, which I think in his state was, it might've been $12. It was something that you can't even imagine someone can live on. And he had lost his job. You know, he was HIV positive, so he couldn't afford his medication. You know, no chance to get, he couldn't get on unemployment. So you hear these stories and she's talking to people like this, there's no shortage of these stories, which is kind of like the crazy part. So she, but I think, you know, I think she's done a good job. Uh, I know she's done a good job making the stories, but it's also about sort of processing it and making sure that the stories get told because at the end of the day, that's what the, that's what the journalism community needs to do is get these stories out there because if all, if the, if the only thing we hear is the government talking, you don't, you sort of miss the, you can't see the forest from the trees, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And then there's also her ability to compartmentalize that, right? Like she has to be able to yeah. understand that her life as an employee of CNN is one thing and that her life with you is a, a totally different thing. And that, that an inability to do that would probably wear pretty heavily emotionally. No, 100%. And it's, yeah, it's definitely, she, she's done a great job though. And she's put up with a lot of my um, lesser good qualities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, That's a really nice way to put it. <laughs> like something I learned this um, during this period is that I apparently breathe very heavy when I have noise, noise canceling headphones on and I'm typing aggressively. <laughs> so, That's a, I mean, that is something that you would have difficulty figuring out under non-quarantine circumstances, I would yeah, imagine. That's literally the only silver lining out of this, is that I now know that I have to control my breathing. <laughs> and so um, let's, so while we're talking about content generation, this is my clean segue to be well done. Right? On the fly, too. I didn't write that down or anything. Um, so why don't you take, 60 seconds and talk us through B-roll, what it is, what you guys are trying to do. Yeah. Um, so B-roll, I started uh, about three and a half years ago, which is crazy that this is now, it's not just my job. It's no longer, you know, I, it's still a startup. It doesn't feel like that. Now it just feels like where I go to work, which is cool. But um, I, in short, it, we're a video creation platform. So we connect brands with a network of video creators to make ads. So we have, over 10,000 people in our network. Um, a lot of them are everyday people um, who will make a quick video for 20 bucks. A lot of them are influencers. A bunch of them are professional video creators who film with you know, cameras and mics. But we have this network of people that really can make ads that brands will run on social media, um, put on their websites, run in programmatic. Um, actually, increasingly, we're looking at TV ads and TV spots. So it's sort of this... We're, we're essentially making 
everyday people make the ad content. From an influencer perspective, so years ago, I was at an Ad Monsters conference, and there was a guy named Frank Simonetti who presented, who I talked to for a bit afterwards, and he runs a like a Gen Z targeted content creation platform called Sweetie High, uh-huh. uh, which I had never heard of, and yeah, I felt a little weird, like two guys in our two like white guys in our forties talking about what content attracts teenage girls was a bit weird, but once we got past, <laughs> once we got past that, um, you know, he said to me, look, it's really cool to have someone like Jojo Siwa on your platform who can attract millions of people at once, but mm-hmm. she can be expensive, hard to book, difficult to get in touch with. So you'd almost rather have 20 people who can reach a hundred thousand people than yeah. you would one person who can reach 2 million. Do you find that that translates to your uh, business model? To- totally. I mean, I think the way the way and it's actually I've learned a lot of it surprisingly translates from pre-real the way that I think about an influencer is that they're sort of like a media publisher in that if you're you know we work with someone like Nastia Lukin who's a you know gold medal olympian she's got over a million followers on Instagram pretty good following on Twitter and that's a media property that's something where a brand says there are a lot of eyeballs there and I want to be on, I want to be advertising on that quote unquote media property, but you know, large influencers have built up an audience and, you know, honestly deserve to be, you know, compensated at a very high level. The question is, is that the same as having a hundred people, you know, with 5,000 followers, right? And the, it's sort of, I don't think there's a, it's not an either or discussion for most brands or at least the brands that have the budget to afford all of this. Um, sure. The way we usually think about it is that it, they're so, they sort of complement each other. You know, it, it's kind of like the equivalent of buying the CNN homepage as an advertiser, but also buying up a whole bunch of micro, you know, small uh, local news sites or a bunch of small niche news players. Like you, you, we want to, you want to be sort of everywhere. And a lot of it for us is about, we're much more interested in what they call micro influencers, you know, people with, you know, 5,000 to 75,000 followers on Instagram, people that have built a good following. They probably have a real job. This is like maybe side money or side hustle they're doing. But if you aggregate enough of them, you have a really engaged audience um, for a brand to get its message out. Do you have a couple of, executions that you guys have done off the top of your head for brands that you're particularly proud of? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot. Um, yeah, and it, it, one of the cool things is sort of the variety of, of executions that we've done. We just did a, uh, we just did a campaign on TikTok for um, NASCAR and the Daytona 500 for Fox Sports. And what what's interesting about that is you have a platform like TikTok that's but essentially J, uh, Gen, JC, Gen Z. So it's very, you know, let's call it average age is 16 to 18. You know, it's high school kids. And also it's beginning to skew a little bit older. But it's not necessarily a platform where you would believe that NASCAR fans are. But the surprising thing is that they are on that platform. Younger NASCAR fans are there. So we basically were making these kind of quick, quick little fun videos of people actually uh, simulating a victory shower, you know, when they like cross the finish line at NASCAR. So they literally would spill, spray a Coca-Cola bottle all over their head. And it's supposed to be like <laughs> celebrating the small moments in life. And we had, I think, 50 people to do it. And some of them were big influencers and some of them were just everyday people. 
Um, and it's a really fun campaign to see people just going, just being kind of crazy and posting it to their followers on TikTok. And it's just like a very interesting way for the brand to be out there beyond the obvious things that they're already doing like spending on TV. Um, and then you kind of juxtapose that versus we're working, you know, we'll work with Procter and Gamble, uh, for always discreet, which is a, you know, women's incontinence product. It's like the polar opposite. You know, we're working with women over 65 who, um, will talk candidly about their experience with bladder leakage. So it's a complete, literally the polar opposite. But what's cool about it is people are filming these videos on their phone in the B-roll app. Um, and it's authentic. It just feels real. It's not like shot on a soundstage. It's, there's no director there. The camera's a little shaky, but that's kind of the raw authenticity that, you know, I think the next generation of consumers wants. I don't think people want to see polished videos. So it's cool to see the two, two campaigns like that next to each other. Yeah, especially given that they're created by the same platform, which is, that's truly unbelievable. So now that you've, I mean, you've, you've founded this company, it's your job now. You've been going, as you said, for three and a half years. What are, what have you found to be the thing that you've learned having yeah. founded a company? Uh, it's hard. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. Okay, what's one A? Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the thing is that, I, I think when you first start a company, you have an idea and you think that the idea is just going to propel you forward. And that works for like the first three months where people are like, wow, that's a great idea. You should do that. But you know what? If you listen to enough startup pitches, they all sound pretty good. I mean, most ideas sound like interesting because hopefully the founder has found something that um, they're passionate about and that they have unique expertise in. But then once you get into the, you know, the real world of scaling a company, you know, managing people in a very, very, very unstructured environment, um, I've never worked in an environment like this where there's literally no structure and you have to create it for yourself every day. And what I've learned about myself is that I've been very used to structured environments and I had to sort of let go of any hope of structure, honestly, um, because, you know, you'll, you'll work with a small startup one day that cares about um, you know, running their little paid ad campaigns, you know, they're spending a thousand dollars a month, but they think B-roll is great. And then you'll sit down and we'll work with Netflix and they're pouring huge amounts of money into, you know, tier one large influencers. And you have to sort of straddle between the two of those, decide which makes sense and also build an operational model that maybe supports both, maybe supports one and decide what your business model is going to be, which, which customer group do you care about? And it's these kind of, big decisions that you're always making. Um, so for me, it's sort of being okay with a lack of structure and a lack of clarity. Um, and then, I'm, and once you're okay with it, then completely embracing. So then free will is probably a pretty interesting mini step between being an investment banker where it's effectively nothing but structure, right? right? Like they, they slap your wrist with a ruler if you're not using Excel, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then what you do today, which is effectively craft your own hours. I mean, you know, in within reason, I would imagine, but yeah. um, and probably allow your employees um, to do something similar. Like it's an availability thing, but flexibility within the workday. So free will feels like a like it was a good straddling point between the totally. two. Yeah, I mean, and I honestly, if I hadn't worked at Free Will, I don't think I would have done this. I, don't, I wouldn't have even been inspired to do a startup. Um, and I, you know, I started at Free Will in twenty. I think it was twenty thirteen. 
So I started there before Lisa, you know, our first HR um, manager. I mean, I, there was no HR department at Freewheel. You know, we were all kind of sitting in a somewhat small but growing. You know, it was a, it was a, it was still a large, fast growing startup. But the DNA, the sort of like the the DNA of an early stage startup was still there. You know, it was still the very fun environment. The culture is still being formed. You're still figuring out what exactly the business is going to be and how big it can get. And that that was that back then was foreign to me because I had been working at you know investment banks. I also worked at Viacom for you know after business school, and um, I was still used to having a boss who would basically say, "This is what needs to be done this week and this and today. Here's your you know, here's your professional review. You know, here's what you're doing well. Here's what you need to work on, etc." And but Freewheel kind of did help bridge that gap where it still had the it had some of the structure that you get in a corporate environment, but it was still you could come up with an idea and it could actually change the company's trajectory in theory, right? Where if I did that at Viacom, nothing I was doing at Viacom was changing the game. So that That's I, right. I, I kind of got into that mindset at Freewheel. And then, you know, you work long, you, you get the other cool part is that you're direct, direct line to the, you know, all three founders. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very cool to be that close to executive and then it's, it's infectious. So, you know, you just, uh, you spend yeah. time with them and you kind of want to do it yourself. Or at least that was going to be my next question, which was effectively like, to what extent did they influence your own founder's mentality? They were, I, all three of them are very unique personalities and, you know, they had their own corporate backgrounds right. um, that they worked through too. So like they were effectively transitioning into something where they were running the show themselves and probably learning on the fly for a few years before you got there. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting that all three of them started. You know, they started Freewheel in what in what you would, I think, technically say is you know later later in life for starting a startup. I mean, most of the people starting companies are you know twenty four years old, um, and I sort of fit that as well. Like, I started B roll when I was thirty six, so that's that's late. That's like like you're you're a dinosaur in the startup world when you start a company that late. So. But what I would say, what I learned a lot from those guys is that they were bringing, they were sort of bringing what they knew about the corporate world into creating a platform that worked for the corporate world. And I'm kind of doing the same thing. So for me, having the experience of, you know, managing clients at Freewheel translates immensely into my job now where I'm spending a lot of time with huge ad agencies or really big clients who are corporations, right? So I'm used to, I've... The, the corporate experience really helps me. So I, I definitely watched that a lot in them. And what's also cool about the three founders of Freewheel is that they all are, you know, very complementary in terms of skill set and just the way they approach things. So I like to think of myself as sort of combining a bunch of their best aspects, except I'm not technical in any way. So that's... The <laughs> <laughs> we could do probably an entire hour on what wildly different personalities those guys and this conversation's reminding me i need to reach out to doug and john because i haven't seen them in a while uh, i see diane you know reasonably frequently but um they're such wildly different personalities yeah um that that's i think what worked but I, that. It, is, it is what kind of works i mean you have to have uh, you know I, i'm gonna get in trouble for this one but you, you basically need to have the you know sort of the mad scientist you need to have sort of the even keel uh, business side, and then you need to have someone who can manage the technical aspects of the business. And for me, one of the hard parts is not having someone who can manage the technical aspects of the business. Like I don't have a co, I don't have a technical co-founder, so 
that's the part where I've had to teach myself. I've had to learn like, and it's familiar stuff from Freewheel product roadmaps and thinking about, you know, agile development and stuff. I, it's familiar, but now I have to just do it. And, and our engineering team is in Ukraine. So I'm basically spending my time, you know, kind of working across the ocean again with people that, you know, English isn't the first language. So a lot of it is me trying to learn how to build an engineering pipeline and also how to communicate with engineers in the Ukraine. Do you, do they work U.S. hours or do you, are you sort of offset in the day? No, they, I mean, they, they're pretty good about it. I'm it's almost like, I almost can't understand it sometimes. Like I'll accidentally slack them at, you know, nine o'clock at night, not expecting an answer. I'm just kind of, just kind of throwing something into the ether and, you know, assuming they'll pick it up the next day and then they respond instantly. And, I, and I'm kind of like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are you up at four in the morning on Slack? But you know. I have found that is the negative byproduct of quarantining here in the States is that I'll send an email out, not thinking about someone else and they feel the pressure to respond <laughs> uh, because they're all, all over the place. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 tomorrow's good. I know you're near your computer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So totally changing gears. Mm. We both did a triathlon. In yeah. fact, we both did the same triathlon. We high five um, in the middle of it. Yeah, we did. We high fived in the in the 10k part of it. So I can tell you why I did it, although I'm still not certain. What possessed you to say, okay, I'm in the middle of founding a company. Why don't I also layer in, you know, five months of training, three hours? Yeah. A day? Um, it's an yeah, it's a good question because my brother is my brother did not a full Ironman, and he he'd really got into this over the the prior years. And I was always like, there's no way I'm doing that shit. Like, I'm not running. Uh, I'm not getting on a bike for five hours and, you know, learning how to swim. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, get, you know, back, it, it does not all things tie to a startup. But, you know, in my, in my, you know, my life is a bit stressful sometimes, as is everyone's. And, like, I was putting on weight. I wasn't kind of... Um, my mental clarity wasn't as good as it should be. And I was kind of like, well, look, I could just start going to the gym again, or I could do something where I'm forced into back to structure. I'm forced into structure so that, you know, when that, when uh, the New York city triathlon in July happens, I'm doing it or I'm going to drown in the Hudson river. So I, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but um, you know, then for me, it was it wasn't so much about challenging myself. It was more about locking myself into something, getting my mental health back on track, and then then I just kind of got really into it while I was doing it. It, it kind of reminded me of playing hockey and training for something. It was just cool to have something you were building towards. And um, you know, I, like they always say in the triathlon world, I remember people were always telling me this before the race. They're they're saying, you know, you got to run your own race which is like a really interesting thing. Like, like don't go into the race and try to beat that guy that you don't even, you've never even seen before. So I really like that mantra because it also applies in my career now where there, there's always this kind of impetus to be like, Oh man, they raised money. And like, you know, so-and-so company is crushing it and everyone always is seemingly crushing it. But the reality is that everyone's struggling, but the best course is to just stay, you know, run your own race. So I kind of do that in my own life now. And then, now I'm just addicted. I just bought a three thousand dollar tri bike. So, oh my god, you're crazy. No, I finished. I crossed the finish line, and I I found my buddy who I'd been training with, 
And he's like, okay, when are we doing the next one? And I'm like, I think the question you want to ask is when are you doing the next one? <laughs> Come on. You can do it. I'm like, so <laughs> it's, um, yeah, no, I, the one thing I will say is um, you do tend to get addicted. It, it, it all runs downhill. It's the same way that when you get out of the mindset of a training regimen of any kind, it's really easy to fall out of it. Right term right it's really easy to fall into it um once you get into it and, and I, I did find the same thing while i was training um and so i did say i might you know i'd, I'd think about doing a sprint or a, a smaller one somewhere yeah. along the line um but it did get me back into running um i would have run the new york city half and i would have run the brooklyn half if they were actually happening this year um are they not which, happening no they're well the New York City half was supposed to be last month. It's totally canceled. And they just canceled the Brooklyn half either today or yesterday. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the New York City try is going to be canceled too, which... Well, and what, are you in this? Did you get into this one? Yeah, I this got year? into this one. I, oh, you well, got what was your first reaction when it was canceled in July? Um, anger. <laughs> and, you know, I... I I've, went, I've oscillated on this one because I'm kind of like... At first, I was like, this is ridiculous. People need to make their own decisions and decide if they're willing to run in 105 degree heat and if they're if they properly trained. And that was my first mindset. And then I kind of like sat back for a second. I'm like, okay, we're also asking people to who volunteer to stand out there in the heat. And you know, honestly, some people who think they can run this race are going to do it, and someone's going to die. And that's probably just not what should be happening. So, you know, I think it. I think at the end they probably made the right decision, although I begrudgingly say that. Um, but I did run the race myself anyway. So yeah, that's right. You did what you called the De Blasio triathlon, right? right? It was my De Blasio <laughs> protest. I, I, you know, and I, I thought there would be more people doing that, but I just went into Central. I went to Equinox in, in uh, on 59th Street. You know, swam a mile, and then I just you know I biked and ran around the uh, the park, and I was with. I was just waiting to wake up like on the sidewalk, like collapsed with like people being like, what are you doing out here? But I made it. Yeah, that's the thing. I found that, um, so I did something similar. I don't know that I did quite the full distance, but I did do all three legs that day. Um, oh, my immediate reaction was depression. Um, but I almost immediately after was like, this is completely the right call. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, you don't want someone drowning in that. First of all, that disgusting, hot, muddy water in the Hudson, but yeah. Um, outside of that collapsing on the run. I mean, they would have shut it down in the middle of the race and then people sure. really would have been pissed. And that would have been worse because if you go through the whole training and then they either shut the race down the middle or they, a lot of times they abbreviate it. So you end up running like a sprint or less and you train for, you know, something. And I would rather, since this is my first, I would rather have done it the, the full thing. And, um, you know, maybe it's a blessing in disguise because I was really crappy at swimming still in July. So I mean, I found the Westchester course probably a thousand times more gratifying than I would have found the New York City course anyway. Yeah, I think so, so too. Because it was small and, and there was a nice community aspect to it and it just felt it felt right. But, uh, you know. All right. Final question. Who wins in a fist fight? Oh, boy. Doug or John? <sighs> well, like, what are the, what are the other rules? Like, what are, where is it happening? What are the rules? It's a street fight. Bare knuckle brawl. No biting. Um, I don't know how to answer this. I'm going to say, 
So John would just get very strategic about it and try to figure out like the best angle at which to do an uppercut, I guess. And I think Doug is kind of a brawler probably like Doug, you know, I've, I've seen Doug like mad maybe once or twice. A lot of it was during sticky as negotiations. I've seen, he brings it out every now and then I've seen it in clients like once. Cause he's like usually like the, you know, kind of a teddy bear, but then he has that, that I think he has that anger and ability to unleash it. So it would be a yeah, he yelled at Brent Horowitz once at CES, which was pretty funny. He what? He yelled at Brent Horowitz at CES once. Oh, that I that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think my money is on Doug, but I don't think it'll be. The thing is, I think it would be a tech. I think it would be technical. So because I think John will be very strategic about getting out of the way of the of the fury. So. That's yeah. that is exactly the type of analytical answer I was hoping for. So well, thanks for coming through. I, I mean, I was going to say, and to be diplomatic, that it would be a draw, but no, I would not have accepted that. I need a winner. Wait, yeah. who? Well, so what, now you have to tell me who, who would win. Oh, I think Doug would absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think he would. It, it would basically be John would spend a minute delivering. It depends on how dirty the fight could get, though. I feel like John would fight <laughs> dirty. But I feel like Doug would win. That that's my assessment. Yeah. Here's here's a more important question then. Is there any way that we could ever make this happen? Well, what I would love to do is actually do it in a boxing ring for charity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like go find a boxing ring somewhere and let them slug it out for a few rounds, see what happens. I, mean, I don't want to kill either of them though. I mean, they're getting up there. I I'll I'll give all the money in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> all right man that's a good place to stop it dude thanks for doing this this was awesome thank you sir very fun thanks to brian dutt for taking the time to talk playing us out straight from the streets of the boogie down here's slick rick and dougie fresh with lottie dotty see you guys next time oh yeah Lottie Dottie! Lottie Dottie! Lottie! Lottie! You know what? Yo, beat this. Lottie Dottie. We like to party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some men.